0: Mark chapter two, continuing our series through the gospel of Mark, beginning in 18 and going all the way through verse 22. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting and people came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Heavenly Father, we recognize that when you sent your son, everything changed. God, when you sent Jesus to live the life that we could never live and die the death that we deserve to die, everything in our relationship with you and in the world changed. Our old selves are incompatible with this life that you've called us to. God, I pray that today you would teach us from your word, that you would lead us not only in knowledge of who you are, but you would lead us into intimacy with you, that we would be transformed in your presence. God, I pray that as your people, we would be marked by this tension of fasting and feasting, longing for your presence and experiencing it by the Holy Spirit. So may your presence just rest upon this place, and satisfy our longing for connection, for communion with you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, imagine a young couple preparing for marriage. They're doing everything right. Okay. They're working on their communication and conflict resolution skills. They're they're praying and pursuing God's will. They're receiving premarital counseling and they have biblical and helpful boundaries set up to promote purity and health in their relationship. They're receiving tons of compliments and encouragement from people in the church who see their life, see it as honorable, see it as holy, they're, they're paraded in front of the, ch- the church and, and the youth as this godly example of what Christian dating should look like. And as far as anyone can tell, everything is going about perfectly. But what would happen if this couple were to get married and continue living as though they were not married? They continue to live separately. He still lives with his parents and she's with some, some roommates they're paying their own bills. They, they continue to practice abstinence because that's what they received all the praise for. Everyone was praising them for the purity of their relationship. And so they continue to live by those same boundaries. What once worked for a dating couple is no longer appropriate for a marriage. The wedding changes everything. See, a marriage is not just the next step in a committed relationship. It's not like you meet each other, you get to know each other, you like each other. So now you're you're exclusively dating and then your relationship grows and you start talking about marriage and then you get engaged and then the next step is marriage. That's not how it works. The difference between an engaged couple and a married couple is that the married couple has a brand new kind of relationship. They are now in covenant. They're not just committed. They are in covenant. The wedding changes everything. And so it changes the way a husband and wife are to live. And the disciplines that prepared them for marriage now actually interfere with the health of their marriage because something brand new is taking place. Well, the coming of Jesus has changed everything. The old system of Jewish religion, the old system of Jewish practices that were intended to prepare the people for God's presence is no longer appropriate now that God is present in Jesus. And so Jesus and his disciples are living differently. Jesus' disciples are not fasting as the other pious people. And this seems like a violation of the old system. And so it's seen as a problem by some of the people. Now to begin understanding the fullness of what's happening here, we need to understand the purpose and the practice of fasting. Fasting is a spiritual discipline. Now don't get thrown off by that word discipline. The word discipline and disciple come from the same word. We've been talking about this, that a disciple is a learner. A disciple of Jesus is someone who is with Jesus, learning from Jesus and becoming like Jesus. And so disciplines are the learning tools of a disciple. They are practices that bring us into intimacy with God and form our character over time. And so anyone who has pursued proficiency in anything understands the value of discipline. A musician understands the value of disciplining themselves and memorizing their scales. A mathematician understands the importance of the discipline of memorizing and practicing mathematical formulas and equations. And an athlete understands the discipline of practicing the fundamentals of their game. Practice makes perfect, right? And so spiritual disciplines are those practices that promote spiritual growth and maturity. And so this includes things like prayer, Bible reading and study, meditating on scripture, uh, uh, solitude and silence, and, and a variety of other things, as well as fasting. And so fasting itself is intentionally abstaining from food, in order to pursue a greater satisfaction in God's presence. It's choosing to create in yourself a physical need in order to remind yourself of your spiritual need. See, so often we walk around as disconnected people. We we don't experience life as whole people. It's difficult to make sure that our heads and our hearts and our hands are all connected in the things that we're thinking and believing and doing. We walk around disconnected. And so maybe you've had that experience uh, in your life that your external experiences are not matching up with your internal life. Maybe you've experienced this in church. You hear a message of hope, might even believe it, but feel hopeless at the same time because of what you're experiencing in life. You sing a song of praise and at the same time you feel empty. So we don't often experience life holistically as a whole person, mind, body, and spirit. Years ago, I began to recognize somewhat of an imbalance in myself after being in pastoral ministry for years, my, my daily life was a mental, emotional, and spiritual struggle. It was a fight constantly. And yet physically I sat at a desk or I sat in meetings with people. And so the fight that I was experiencing internal was not connected to the way my physical body was living. And I didn't realize this disconnect until I randomly tried my first jujitsu class showed up to jujitsu got on the mat started grappling with some random guy and something happened in my body my my joints felt disconnected from one another uh, but for once, the, the fight, the, the internal struggle that I had been having was made physical. It felt like I was finally validating the, the stress, the anxiety, not validating the anxiety. I should be trusting in the Lord more. That's true. But the, the the fight and the struggle that I was experiencing mentally, emotionally, and spiritually was was made physical. And I felt in that moment like a whole person. And so when we practice the spiritual discipline of fasting, we put our physical bodies in a state of need in order to connect us with our spiritual need. And this reminds us that what we truly need is not food, but the presence of God. Only God can truly satisfy. And so the practice of fasting was a regular part of the Jewish life. It was a regular part of Jewish life, but there is only one fast a year commanded in the law. That was on the day of atonement. The day of atonement was the only day the children of Israel were commanded to fast annually. And so they did so. They abstained from food, created in themselves this physical hunger, which reminded them of their spiritual hunger for atonement. And so they fasted in not only repentance, but in anticipation of God removing their sin from them, atoning, their, uh, atoning them of their sin. But though that was the only day that was required annually, there were certainly other opportunities throughout daily life to fast. Some of these situations would include the death of a loved one, people would fast as they mourned, an illness. They fasted as they longed for healing during times of hardship and trials and various other seasons of mourning and sorrow. It was in these seasons of struggle and loss that people would fast in order to experience the spiritual and emotional grief in their physical bodies, to experience life, to experience God, to experience the human condition as a whole person and to remember that all of their life needed rescuing. All of us spiritually, emotionally, physically needs to be redeemed. And so eventually this spiritual discipline that was a healthy way of pursuing intimacy and communion with God became a sign of one's holiness. And so the Pharisees mandated two fasts per week. Every week, the Pharisees would fast on Monday and on Thursday. But this practice of fasting gradually became disconnected from the purpose. It stopped being a spiritual discipline in order to grow and fasting became proof of their righteousness. And so this, the practice of fasting was used to show off their holiness instead of seeking God's holiness. And so the followers of the Pharisees are most likely observing one of these two weekly fasts in our text. It's less clear why John's disciples were fasting. It possibly had something to do with him being recently imprisoned. That would certainly be an occasion for fasting. But the reason for their fasting is not Mark's point. Mark is not concerned why the Pharisees and why John's disciples are fasting. Rather, the fact is that Jesus' disciples are not fasting. And that's the point. That Jesus' disciples are not doing what everyone else is doing, and so people take issue with it. Now, even though the complaint is against Jesus' disciples, they go to Jesus and they say, Hey, Jesus, why aren't your disciples fasting like all of these other holy people? Even though they're complaining about the disciples, they're really complaining about Jesus. Imagine being a parent at a park and someone coming to you and saying, Why is your kid so disobedient? Might be a critique on the kid, but what they're saying is you got to get your kid under control, right? The critique of the child is a critique of the parent. And so Jesus, as their leader, is responsible for his disciples. So they're coming to Jesus passive aggressively and saying, hey, bro, get them in line. Get your kids in line. And so Jesus responds. Jesus finds himself in another controversy and he answers the question about fasting, but then he uses it to turn the conversation to address something so much more important than spiritual disciplines. Jesus will address that a new era has dawned in the life of God's people, that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus and the old system of Jewish worship and practices are no longer compatible. The way a wedding changes the relationship between a man and a woman, the presence of Jesus changes the relationship between God and his people. And so Jesus compares fasting in his presence to fasting at a wedding. See, weddings were the biggest ceremony, the biggest celebration that any ordinary person would have been invited to in this season. The festivities would last more than a week sometime and everyone in the community would be invited. And so if fasting is reserved for these times of hardship and grieving and loss, it would be entirely inappropriate to fast during a wedding. And so Jesus says, you're in the midst of a wedding. The bridegroom is present. How can the people fast in the presence of the groom? Now, this is significant because Jesus refers to himself as the bridegroom. And throughout the Old Testament, God refers to himself as Israel's bridegroom, as Israel's husband. And so in a subtle way, maybe not so subtle way if we're paying attention, Jesus again announces the presence of God in himself, that there is a wedding banquet, that the kingdom of God brings a feast. The groom is here. The kingdom is here in me. How can you fast? How can you fast during a wedding. This is not a time of sorrow and fasting. It's a time of celebration and a time of feasting. And so the legalism of the Pharisees had them so focused on the practice of fasting that they completely missed out on the purpose of fasting and therefore they missed out on the very thing the discipline of fasting was training them for the Jewish system of worship and practice was only a participation in the shadow of what was to come. It was only preparing them for what was to come. It always pointed to a day when it would be obsolete. Now that the kingdom was here in Jesus, everything is different. So if you think about the Jewish system of worship and practice, you think about the, uh, um, the sacrifices, right? The sacrifices not only atoned for their sin because the sin was in the world, but it pointed them to a day when God would remove sin from the world. The sacrifices would no longer be necessary if God truly came in and eliminated sin and sent the seed of the woman to crush the head of the serpent and, and expel sin from his creation. Likewise, the priests and the temple, they existed to mediate between God and man, but they always pointed to a day when God himself would reign physically presently on earth. The temple and the priesthood would no longer be necessary if there is not a mediator necessary between God and man. The food laws were established to keep Israel separate and distinct from other nations, but they pointed to a day when all nations would gather around the banquet table in the kingdom and worship the God of Israel. And so Jesus didn't come to abolish the old way. He doesn't eliminate the law or undermine the temple or the priesthood. He fulfills them. And by fulfilling them, he changes everything. How can the friends of Jesus fast when he's with them? Since fasting is remembering and experiencing the need for God's presence, it's inappropriate to fast in the physical presence of Jesus. So the kingdom of God is like a wedding banquet banquet and the Pharisees are refusing to eat with the bride and groom. Imagine that. Imagine inviting someone to your wedding, and this, this spread is laid out for everyone, and and the 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 uh, the the servers are coming by and they're like, oh, you know, chicken or fish, and you're like, nothing. I'll have nothing and like it. I I I reject this food. Like that would just be it would be offensive. Like they paid for that food. Eat it. The Pharisees are at this banquet table and they're refusing to put anything in their mouths. And so this is offensive and the animosity would only continue to grow. And so Jesus says that one day the bridegroom will be taken away and that his disciples would fast in that time. And so this is a veiled prediction of his death. He would soon be taken away from them. He would be violently ripped away from their lives, betrayed, arrested, and nailed to a cross. And instead of sitting down at the table and celebrating the wedding between God and his people, the people and the Pharisees sent the groom to his execution. He didn't stand at an altar. He was nailed to a cross. And this was all according to plan. It was all that Jesus came to do because on the cross, our sins are forgiven. It's the fulfillment of that day of atonement that no longer do we need to offer the sacrifices of blood of bulls and goats, but Jesus' blood atones for our sin, cleanses us once and for all, washes us clean, makes us new, and ushers us into the pre- presence of God. Jesus experienced separation from God on the cross that we might be reconciled to him. The spiritual need that fasting illuminated, the longing for intimacy with God, the longing for reconciliation to God, the longing of being able to approach the presence of God and not die. That's what fasting was illuminating, was finally fulfilled in the death of the Son of God. When all people who believe are reconciled to God, and we have the Holy Spirit, the presence of Christ, dwelling in us. And so, for those who have trusted in Jesus, the power of His his presence lives in us every day by the Holy Spirit. And so, this is not a time for fasting. We have been invited to the feast. We've been invited to feast in Jesus' presence. You see, the hallmark of the Christian life is not the presence of spiritual disciplines. You don't look at your life and say, I know I'm a Christian because I read in my Bible and I pray every morning and I fast twice a week and I serve at the soup kitchen and I go to church on Sundays. The hallmark of the Christian life is not the presence of spiritual disciplines, but joy in the presence of Jesus. That is what the believers in the world should be known for, that joy in the presence of Jesus. Christians should be the most joyful people in the community. Christians should be the most celebratory people in Carpinteria, the coastlands, and the nations. We experience the world just like everyone else does. We experience the hardship. We experience the brokenness. We experience that things are not always, things are not the way that they should be, but we also know they're not going to stay that way. The world has no confidence that what we're experiencing in life will go away. There's no hope. There's nothing to root your hope in. Whether it's COVID or political tensions or racial reconciliation or whatever you would point to and say, this is what's wrong with the world. There is no confidence that it will ever change unless you're a believer and you know that Jesus is going to reconcile all things to himself. That Jesus is going to make all things new. And so we should throw the best parties. Christians should, when the Christians show up to the party, the party should get better. We don't walk in and just start talking about all the things going on that we don't like. We shouldn't be known by the things that we're against. We should be known by the things that we're for. That we bring Jesus with us. We are for Jesus. We are for seeing him as beautiful. We're for enjoying Jesus. We don't live to poo-poo everything else we don't like. There's certainly things that we need to avoid and abstain from in this life because we're following Jesus, but that's not what we're known by. We're known by joy in the presence of Jesus. Our lives should be marked by joy and gratitude and experiencing the kingdom and his abundance because we've already been made new. We've been made new in the presence of Jesus. We have the Holy Spirit that pours out the love of the Father in our hearts, that cries out, Abba, Father. And so we can live with joy. We put on display not our affliction, but our celebration. But this doesn't mean that we don't also fast. This doesn't mean that Christians don't fast. We still experience distance in our relationship with Jesus. We still experience the tragedy and the consequences of sin and the brokenness in the world and in ourselves. We still experience the longing for Christ's return and the redemption of all things. And so it's entirely appropriate to incorporate fasting as a regular discipline in our lives. As believers, we live in the tension between feasting and fasting. We live in this cycle of fasting and feasting, cultivating our hearts to receive the presence presence of God that he pours out abundantly by the Holy Spirit. And so as believers, fasting is this beautiful context for training in holiness and in spiritual maturity. We don't fast as the Pharisees, right? Jesus in Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount said, don't fast like the hypocrites who want everyone to know that they're fasting because they want the acclaim, they want the praise, they want their reward from people. He says, "No, you do it discreetly. You do it secretly. Don't disfigure your face but put oil on your head. Look like you're about to go to a party when you are afflicting yourself with hunger because your praise does not come from people. Your praise, your your reward will come from the father in heaven. And so we don't fast as someone who needs attention from people. We fast because we recognize our need for Jesus. Because though Christians should be known for joy in the presence of Jesus, we don't always experience it the way that we hope to. So what do you do when you know theologically that I have every reason to rejoice in the presence of Jesus, but I don't feel like it? What do we do? Oftentimes, what we do is we fake it. We come to church on Sunday and we put the smile on our face because we want people to know that, yes, I'm a believer. I'm happy to be here. I know we're in a parking lot and the sun is burning my head, but I'm happy to be here. I'm a believer and everything is right and nothing is wrong. We put put the smiley face on and we fake it. And this is just as legalistic as the Pharisees. The Pharisees wanted people to see their fasting and say, oh, that person is so close to God. As Christians, we want people to see the smiles on our face and saying that person must be so close to God. It's legalism all over again. It's self-righteousness all over again. It's doing these things to make other people think we're connected to God when inside our lives are falling apart oftentimes we struggle we experience temptation and sin and we need repentance and we experience hardship and illness and loss and grief and all of these things and the thing that the worst thing to do would be to just put on a smile on our face and become this legalistic christian because in the end it's our relationship with jesus that suffers Like the Pharisees, we get so accustomed to manufacturing something, to manufacturing joy, to manufacturing the smiles on our faces that we miss out, we numb ourselves if we were to actually experience a true kingdom event. We're so busy, concerned about the counterfeit that we miss the real thing when it happens. And so rather than putting on false joy, we're invited to fast. We're invited to press into that that emptiness that we feel. We're invited to press into that longing, to press into that need for Jesus. Fasting presses us deeper into our need for God. And in this, there's real honest communion with God. We don't show up to church going like, God, I'm gonna worship you because that's what you called me to do. It's a sacrifice of praise. I know inside I'm dead but I'm just going to keep doing it because that's what you call me to do. Sometimes that can be okay, but when that's a habit and we're missing out on the opportunity to say, God, I'm empty. I don't feel like this. I feel distant from you. I feel disconnected from you. I don't feel your presence in my life. And I know theologically that that's not true, that you shall never leave me nor forsake me. But inside, I'm not experiencing that. We have this beautiful invitation to fast and to commune with God in that need. See, fasting is not a hunger strike. Fasting is not a temper tantrum. You're not saying, God, I'm not gonna eat until you do this for me. I'm not gonna eat that until you, you... remind you, you do some miracle to make me feel your presence. That's not what it's about. It's about taking a humble posture, recognizing that you're not experiencing the satisfaction and the joy in God's presence that you long for. And so you abstain from the food that satisfies hunger in order to focus on the spiritual satisfaction and contentment in your soul that only Jesus can provide. And so we fast from food that we might feast in the presence of jesus and so a healthy christian life will experience these cycles of fasting and feasting if we don't plow the field and sow the seed we can't expect to reap a harvest and so we plow and sow through fasting that we might experience the harvest of intimacy and joy in the presence of jesus so how would you describe your current experience with jesus are you experiencing his presence? Are you experiencing his, his activity in your life? Are you experiencing his kindness and his goodness to you? not just theologically, not just something that you know in your head, but as it made its way to your heart and to your whole being? Do you know him uh, it, it to be true and does it align with your experiences of him? If the answer is yes, then praise god you 're in a season of feasting you 're in a season of celebration you're in a in a in a season that God wants you to enjoy and to and to live it up God wants you to throw a party to give thanks to God for what you're receiving from his hand but if the answer to that question is no it doesn't mean that you're any different from the people who are experiencing that if you feel disconnected from God then i want to encourage you to own that to, to press into that and to recognize the invitation that God gives us in fasting. Let the hunger remind you of your spiritual hunger. And as you long for a meal, remember that Jesus is what truly satisfies. And when you break your fast, when you sit down at the table to to eat once again, receive it from the hand of God as something beautiful, designed for you to enjoy, designed to give you strength. Celebrate that and let it point you to the satisfaction that's coming when he returns and there is no longer no separation between us and the Lord. But fasting and feasting are not something that we do only in response to how we feel. We don't just do it when we, when we feel like it. We don't fast when we're, when we're sad and, and, and celebrate when we're happy. It's also an intentional practice in order to cultivate healthy spirituality. Because no matter how good things are, you're still in need. No matter how good things feel, you're still in need. And no matter how bad things might get circumstantially, we, if you know Jesus, we can agree with the psalmist and say that in his presence, there is fullness of joy. And in his right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. And so the Christian life is this tension, this cycle between fasting and feasting, tilling the soil, planting the seeds and enjoying the harvest, not out of legalism, not to show our righteousness, but to honestly commune with God in all seasons of life. Because church, the presence of Jesus changes everything. So many times we come to Jesus and think that Jesus wants to reform our lives. Jesus is something that we add to our lives that's going to make it better. And yeah, now that Jesus is there, I'm going to clean up this area and I'm going to clean up that area. And so we use Jesus to reform our lives, much like the Pharisees used spiritual disciplines to reform Israel. But Jesus didn't come to reform you. He came to transform you. He came to make you something utterly different in his his death, your old self was crucified. And in his resurrection, you have been raised to a new life. And this new life means that you have a new purpose. And the things that worked for us in the past are no longer helpful. The things that we would use to comfort ourselves in the past are no longer helpful. Whether those are substances or sin or relationships or whatever it is, the way we got through life in the past is no longer helpful. The new era is completely incompatible with your old self and this is what Jesus is getting at in these last two metaphors Jesus hasn't left the conversation about fasting but he's shifted to talking about the motives and the goals of all of our worship practices including but not limited to fasting he talks about clothing and wine two very important things at a wedding banquet Clothing and wine. You got stuff in your closet that you only bring out during weddings, right? So did they, right? And so Jesus talks about clothing and wine. He says, No one takes a new patch and sews it on an old garment. The old garment is already shrunken. And so if the new patch goes over the old garment and then you wash it, the new patch shrinks, and now your clothes just look funny. He says, no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Back then, wine was fermented and stored in animal skins that had been stitched together. And as the wine fermented, the skins would stretch. And so if you put new wine, unfermented wine, in old, already stretched wineskins, then when the new wine fermented and stretched the wineskins, the wineskins would burst and the wine would spill out. Jesus says, you don't do that. In the same way, Jesus didn't come to put a patch on Judaism. Jesus didn't come to pour out the kingdom of God into a shadow, a a, a vague shadow of what it was pointing to. It would be like, like pointing us, going to a signpost and clinging to it and believing that you've arrived. Jesus says, I didn't come to put a patch on Judaism. I didn't come to put a patch on your life or to reform it. I didn't come to pour something new into something old. I came to make you new. The new wine of the kingdom is for the new creation of God's people who have been transformed by the Holy Spirit. He didn't come to reform Israel. He came to transform all who would receive him. He didn't come to call people to a reformed obedience to the law. He fulfilled the law and completely transformed the way we relate to God. He didn't return Israel to their former practices, which only reminded them of their separation and their longing. But he ushered God's presence into a world and into our very hearts. And so Jesus hasn't come to patch up your life. He hasn't come to put a patch on your life. What is now New is completely incompatible with who you were. The gospel is not about adding something to your life. It's, about ref- or it's not about reforming your old life. It's about being transformed in the presence of Jesus. We don't invite Jesus into our life as some new hobby that we have, some new belief that we have, some new passion that we have that just comes alongside everything else. Jesus coming into our lives means our old self has been crucified. You're dead. And he has raised you to new life in him. He is making you new. And so the spiritual disciplines are invitations into his presence. Fasting is an invitation into his presence. And it's in his presence, it's in his presence that we'll be changed. It's in his presence that we will be transformed. And so I want to close with another invitation. This week, some of us need to fast and pray. Some of us haven't been experiencing the satisfaction and the joy of God's presence. And it would be wise for us to practice the discipline of fasting. Now, for some people, it might not be good, maybe because of a medical reason or whatever, to fast from food, right? That might, that might cause more problems in your life. Those of you who, that, who are there, you know who you are. And so you can fast from something other than food. Maybe you fast from coffee, or maybe you fast from a particular kind of food that you normally run to for comfort. Maybe it's like sugar or something. Maybe you cut that out of your life for a while. You need to practice this discipline of, of fasting. Let the physical craving remind you of your desperation for Jesus. And when you break your fast, receive your food as a gift from God that points toward the day will be feasting with him in his presence in the kingdom. On the other hand, some of you need to throw a party. Some of you need to gather people together following the COVID restrictions, all of those things in a safe and healthy way. But you need to gather people together to share with them the abundance that God has poured into your life you need to party. You need to celebrate. You need the activities of your body to reflect the activity of God's Holy Spirit in your soul. And so you need to celebrate. I want to encourage you to share that with people, people who love you, who will celebrate with you. Give thanks to God for providing for you in this season. And in this As a church, as we live in this tension of fasting and feasting, as we live in this tension of celebration and longing, and we experience this fasting and feasting as a community, we will be more in touch, not only with our desperation for God, but also more aware of his presence. This is the invitation that the spiritual disciplines are for the life of faith to remember and cultivate desperation, to to remember that that longing is not a bad thing. If you're here today and you're longing for the presence of God, that's not a bad thing. That is a good thing. And as we press into that, and as we, we boldly approach the throne of grace as God's people, we experience his satisfaction of that desperation. We experience his deliverance from that longing. We experience the fulfillment and the fullness of joy in his presence. And so as a church, we're going to press into the spiritual disciplines. We're going to press into fasting and feasting as a way of communing with God and one another. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that we live in a season where your presence is offered to us by the power of your Holy Spirit. The indwelling of your Holy Spirit is God within us. We thank you for the promise that you will never leave us or forsake us. That we always have a reason to celebrate. But God, we also recognize that our experience of you is not always what it should be. And so God, we thank you that you have made a way for us to press into that honestly, to not go to you and, and just complain or, or go to you and just lament over it, but to place our whole bodies in need, to be reminded every moment of every day with every hunger pain, that we are longing for something that we cannot provide for ourselves. And God, when we experience that fullness, when we experience the abundance, when we experience the presence of God being poured out into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, we will have cultivated an environment to receive it with the fullness of joy. God, don't let us miss out on your presence because we're too busy filling ourselves with things we don't need. God, remind us of our desperation for you so that we can celebrate it when your presence comes in its fullness. God, we pray that we would even experience that now in our time of response as we sing, as we worship, as we rejoice in the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for us. I pray that this would be an opportunity to feast in your presence. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.